Nordic Components is an American-owned manufacturing company proud to produce quality products right here in the USA. As a company, we continually invest in our manufacturing capabilities to ensure that all of our products are the highest quality and most efficiently produced parts available. The Nordic Components business consists of two segments, manufacturing and sales. Our manufacturing business works to provide custom machine components for a variety of applications with our specialty being firearm components. The sales business produces lines of branded firearm accessories to enhance and elevate the shooting experience. We are a company owned and operated by individuals devoted to shooting sports, and many of us shoot competitively. We attend and sponsor a number of events around the country each year where we listen to you, the consumer, and are proud to say that all of our firearm components are a direct result of your input. As a firearms accessory provider, our aim is simple. Provide shooting enthusiasts with innovative products of uncompromising performance and reliability. Nordic Components. Check us out at nordiccomp.com. So let's get to today's show. I can't wait any longer. Uh, so you guys have seen the post on Facebook, social media. We've got Ernesto with Multicam, and he has brought Team Multicam with him. Isn't that right, Ernesto? <laughs> Uh, this is Ernesto's first time on the show. Welcome in. Ernesto, introduce the, your all-star cast of team members you got here with us today. Well, the first one that we have is Chuck Miller, who participated and helped out with the last couple of years for the Hollywood Thousand. And the other one of Team Wolf again, who's been a long-time friend of the company Ricky Johnson, who's very legendary uh, off-road racer over the years now. Uh, extremely legendary. He's a seven-time AMA national champion, two-time Baja 1000 winner. I'm sure there's a whole lot more uh, mixed in with that, isn't there, Ricky? Uh, uh, yeah, it's kind of what I've done my whole life, but uh, it, it's, it's an honor to be here. Um, as I say to the guys every time we in training, I'm, well, uh, obviously Jeff was one of the first guys from the special ops community that I got to train. As I say every time, he says it's an honor to, to work with some great Americans that fight a good fight, and, and we believe in it 100%. So it's an honor to be on your show, and also it's an honor to be here to represent uh, Jeff and also Moldy Cat. I'm getting cold chills uh, from, from Ricky. He 
is a legend. Um, and Jeff is building legendary status himself. Looks like he has mic turn off. Did you mute yourself, Jeff? I did this for a second. Okay. <laughs> uh, Jeff, welcome in. We're going to be talking about your amazing accomplishment. Is it the last two years you've been in the Ironman? Is that right? Uh, this, is, this is the third year that I did it. This is the third year. Okay. Tell everybody a little bit about your background. Uh, yeah, so originally from Wisconsin. I uh, joined the military right out of high school in 1988. <clears throat> uh, I saw some Ranger videos. I thought it looked pretty cool. So I had money to join the Naval at Fort Lewis, Washington. Spent a few years there. Uh, jumped into Panama as a new young private ranger, which is kind of crazy. I didn't even know anything at that point in time. Uh, from there, I went and became a ranger school instructor for, for a few years down in the Florida swamp phase of ranger school. From there, I actually tried uh, becoming a helicopter pilot for a while. I became a wild surfer for about hours or so. And I just realized that this is not what I wanted to do. I'd rather be dropped off and drop guys off. Because I had my commission to just give me a four brag, which they did. Uh, I tried it out, trained real hard for a special ops unit. Man, in 1998, um, made it. All went well. And, yeah, I got to do lots of cool stuff all around the world and retired uh, just a little over two years ago in 2013. Oh, wow. So you've not been out too long then. No, not, not real long. You're about my age, then. You're probably, what, mid-40s, something like that? Yeah, 46. Yeah. Thank you for your service. You're very welcome. So let's get into the Baja races. For our listeners who aren't familiar with Baja race. Ricky, give us a little description about the Baja 1000. Well, the Baja 1000 is the longest point-to-point race uh, in North America, and I think around the world. Normally, when they run long races here, the, the car rally or the, the other rallies around the world, they're multiple-day stage races, but when it comes to the Baja 1000, it's a point-to-point. When well, the green flag drops, your, your track throughout the whole event, and some years the Baja 1000 is um, around 850 miles all the way up to 1,200 miles. So it depends on if it's a peninsula run, will it run from the top right by, by basically right by the California Baja and Mexico border all the way down to the tip down to either La Paz or Cabo San Lucas. There's different classes. I've been for the past few years racing the trucks and the buggies, which they have trophy trucks in the top class, class one buggies. Or the top class from there, and then it goes into the motorcycle class with that class 22, where it's the top pros, where nobody in that class is running, running the Ironman. What the Ironman is exactly what it says is that it's you ride the bike 100% by yourself. And so for the first two years that Jeff did it, he was fortunate enough to team up, um, obviously with multi cam that backed it. But the first year was with the Navy SEAL, and then uh, the previous year. With, uh, with this British SAS soldier. So it was great that he got to share the ride. But then this past year, in 2015, he decided to, you know, on a 10 and jump on the grenade and, and, take, and take on the ball 1,000 solo because we've talked about it for a long time. And, and Jeff talks about having a gut check and, and, and things like that. So there's not a lot of people that have the balls, have the courage, have the strength, have the willpower to to compete in the ball 1,000 in the Ironman class. Every year that I've done it, I've won. I've been a part of a team. Um, we've got a second overall in the class 40, where that's a lot of four-year-old guys. And we did extremely well for our age, and we finished, you know, a second on the podium. But I've never been physically able to to tackle the Ironman. And, and so what, what he did in just his third time down there was, was absolutely remarkable. And, yeah, it is phenomenal. 
when you see when you see the video that all the cameras put together, they, it's hard to grasp everything that he went through that night because there's so much that you can't because there's hours at end where he's he's by himself in the middle of the night, wants to soap as and trying to watch his GPS or his lead map system, and you can't capture all of that. So you kind of look at it and you have some highlights in the middle, and you can see the enthusiasm on his face <laughs> and the sheer the um, exhaustion at the end, but it's hard to get It's like a, did you say, is it like a 25-hour race? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah last year it took uh, me 25 and a half hours uh, to complete it, and it's pretty close. I think my goal is 24, um, and I had a couple little mishaps where I, I would have made or beat that, but... Uh, now, you actually, last year you came in, you finished first, but officially second, is that right? Yeah, so I finished first, uh, two and a half hours ahead of the guy in second place. So um, it's kind of weird. Ernest was telling me that there's actually some parts of the course that have speed limits. Is that right? You know, race. Yeah, you know, Ricky can talk about this from the earlier races, but, you know, recently, within the last few years, they, uh, all the hardball sections are 60 miles an hour now. And they're GPSed up, and they can track that because they're, they're live courses. You've got cars coming the other way, and... You know, I guess in the past, you know, you'd have a trophy truck side by side going 130 miles down the road. And, I mean, it was just kind of sketchy and right. you know, fiercely trying to rein them in, I guess. Yeah, well, when they've got it on the public roads, it makes sense that you're going to have to abide by the laws, at least most of the time. <laughs> and I guess, is that where you got your penalties was going on? That was most, yeah, that was most of them. And there, I didn't, it was my fault. I didn't realize how harsh the penalties were. I mean, the response... Where I looked down, I was 61 or 62. There was one spot where a guy got hurt bad um, in the early parts of the race the night before pre-running. So the provincial mayor or, or governor in that area made it a 37 miles an hour zone. And I didn't know that started or ended, and I kind of split the difference for a while, going about 45. I mean, that's got to be tough to, you know, you just lost the wall going 100 miles an hour, and then all of a sudden you got to drive down to 37, and that's going to be like road rage. Yeah, it's it's uh it's a little different. You almost need someone is telling me you almost need like one of those Formula One buttons that kind of keeps you at a uh, certain speed. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ricky had, uh, had brought up a quote that you had said in the video like once a year you got to have a gut check. I yeah. thought that was cool. Yeah, I think you know just got to I don't know just do something really hard and demanding whether it's you know go hump on Mount Rainier or I don't know do a mar- run a marathon or. Yeah. Something like that. Kayak a river, you know, some, something along that line. We, we work with a lot of uh, veteran organizations, uh, one of those being the Mission 22, which uh, is Veteran Suicide Awareness uh, Organization, and Sheep Dog Impact Assistance Group. And in working with those guys, their main mission is to get veterans out and doing things, you know, to get their minds uh, because of the sheepdog mentality is constantly moving and working, and they got to be doing something. Um, and I think you know, what you've done with, with yours and translating into these races, obviously, I mean, you're very successful with that. Uh, is a testament that these guys, you know, there is life after service, whether you're law enforcement, military, firefighters, you know, just get out there and do it. The gut check. Yeah, I agree. Just you know, keep yourself busy, keep your mind going. And- you know, I've said before to you, you're only as old as you think you are. So if you think you're 50 and you can sit on the couch, then that's what you're going to do. Now, these Ironman races, is it age-specific? Is, is it just everybody, every man for himself? Or is it the 40, you know, age 40, 
east or whatever gets that age group, how that works. And there were only seven, I think, wasn't there? Yeah, I'm not sure there's only seven. Yeah, there's a couple of guys around my age. There's one kid that was like 19 that finished, uh, he had finishing time for scoring. Um, there's actually a 60 year old guy, or close to 60. <laughs> he showed, I mean, he, he just kind of trail rode and he, he was on the same tire the whole way. Yeah, but he was out there doing it, though. You gotta get him props for that. Finished it, and it was. It's kind of amazing. He came out without a crew, without any spare parts, and we just rode it. But yeah. Um, Talk about the, the conditions in these races, the weather, the terrain. It's pretty brutal. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, you go from silt beds to gnarly shale rock roads that are real uncomfortable to ride on. Every now and then you'll get a real nice high speed beach section. What's up, buddy? How you doing? <laughs> How you got there? Yeah, this is my six-year-old son. Like, he was okay playing some Xbox. Terrific so, turtle. Yeah. <laughs> are you, are you, are you, what are you playing? Playing Star Wars? What are you playing, buddy? Oh, man, my niece loves that game. She's got, like, there's, like, a thousand different pieces for that game. It never ends. Yeah, he sure loves a bunch of <laughs> You got you gotta race the Baja with your dad this year? race the Baja. <laughs> He's like, I'm not having any part of that just yet. <laughs> oh, no, he has been riding a uh, dirt bike without training wheels since he's been three years old, so he gets out there and rides a little bit. There you go. Breaking him in early. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, we were talking about the, the conditions. Um, yeah, so, you know, shield beds, gnarly shield roads, every now and then you get a uh, real nice high speed section along the beach. That's a lot of fun. Um, you know, there's some. You know, by Mike Sky Ranch, I'll be in recent history, but I just remember getting real steep and rocky and to the point where if you stall out or don't make it up the first attempt, you're not going straight back. You gotta kinda of turn around and come back up. Yeah. So really just all all types of terrain. It's, um, and the temperatures too, I'm sure during the day versus at nighttime, there's a big drastic uh, temperature change too. That's gonna be a little rough on the body. Yeah, so you know, it's November, so yeah, you're probably mid seventies, maybe low eighties and then yeah, I'm definitely wearing a nice climb jacket, you know, riding jacket at night to get in the 50s, and it's, it's pretty chilly for sure. Yeah, especially that wind chill, I'm sure. That's right. And if you're hitting any, any rain or, or wet terrain, that can't uh, help much either. Yeah, two years ago, it uh, got some pretty good rain at night. Yeah. So, Ricky, um, you were talking about, you know, these guys are out on these, these races, these Ironman, and they're out by themselves. There's probably some big distance between them and the next point of civilization. And if something happens, you know, how do they how do they get help? Figure it out. You just kind of figure it out. Not if it's the bottom, that's the truth of me and all. And, and, I, and I've said it in, in your movies and stuff like that, that you don't realize your fears until you're out there by yourself. And I don't think it's, I'm not afraid that the boogeyman's going to get me. I'm not afraid of the dark. I'm, not, I'm afraid to fail. You know, and that's what everybody's first thing is. But then you realize when you look back and there's no light there that if I fall, there's nobody to pick me up. I mean, they're going to look at they're going to look at a blip on a tracker that's going to read every three minutes, and they're going to see my my mile an hour is zero, and then they're going to worry about me and stuff like that. So, so when a guy's out there riding, you when in a way you're afraid of the dark because you don't know, you lose track of where you're at. You're watching your GPS, you're doubting your GPS because you're used to seeing the coast or the mountains. Or the you got a visual point of reference, yeah. Right, and when you have 
just the light, you know, like the bottom side that, that Jeff ran, that's all that's illuminated in front of you. It's not like having an IR where you can see out there and see the train, the mountains, everything. It's just that beam of light. And when it gets dusty or when it gets foggy, which a lot of times it does in the bottom of thousand, that fog rolls in either in the morning and at night. Sometimes you can't see past your front fender. So, so it creates a, there's all kinds, there's so many things that are roadblocks that can get in your way. And you just have to honestly, mentally block them out. Just know that, know that they're there. And yes, there's a fear of failure, of breaking my bike, of crashing, and doing all these different things. But I just have to focus on one more step, one more step, one more step. And I can, I can equate it. I haven't done it. I'm talking to Jeff when he went through selection and, and for a ranger and, and, and other things. It's about making sure that you put one foot after the next. And like I said, he can attest to that because I think that's the kind of willpower that, that, that took him from a point where his crotch is raw, is, you know, he, he's run out of water, he's done all these different things, and he keeps pushing. But just so never but to educate everybody on that is that for a motorcycle, they put this roughly 50, anywhere from 40, 40 to 60 miles away because you can't, you're not running a giant uh, gas tank. So it'll be, um, you know, he ran a, a company called Bob, this where you pay for your gas and tires and different stuff, and you pull in, they have food that you want, the tires that you want, and things. And then you had Ernesto and a couple other guys that were chasing the race and had spare wheels and food and goggles and then on the ground. That was going to be one of my questions was, you know, if something breaks, you've got a team there. I mean, you're not necessarily racing as a team, but you've got a team there for support for mechanical and physical type stuff, right? Exactly. And so, for the, as we said, I know there's, there's some good people that you can do max seven and that, but if you talk to the factory guys like Kawasaki or Honda, they'll have their own pits because they want them strategically placed because they might want to get past somebody at that time, or they might want to stress the pit a little longer or short pit to change a wheel or whatever it might be. I thought you said, yeah, I thought you said piss earlier. That's why I was laughing. I'm sorry. It's funny. Piss is what I thought you said. <laughs> Yes, yeah, I got it now. I'm with you now. <laughs> we're not, we're not in, we're not in one of the clubs in Sonata. That was some kind of new fuel. Some kind of new little motorcycle fuel. Wow, yes. Right. So, like I said, yeah, about every 50 miles or so. But still, think about that. Think about we're going to go driving down the, the highway 50 miles is a long way. You know, um, when you're going through the desert and stuff and the other different things along the way, it can be quite nerve wracking, especially on a guy that's uh, pretty much gassed out and, and blowing bubbles. Yeah. So, as the the trainer, the coach, what do you do to to get these guys ready physically and mentally for this race? Well, for, for Jeff, well, there's only so much that you can do because you 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 know I talked with Alexander Smith. He's a legendary mountain Smith son who's won the Ironman before. And I asked him, I said, "What do you do to get ready for this?" He goes, "You can't." He says, I can't physically train my body to take a 24-hour beating. I can get in good shape. I can make sure that I'm prepared as far as, you know, I'm not, I'm not dehydrated, I'm eating, I'm ready to go. But it's a more of a mental thing to push yourself past that. And so with Jeff, was just the big thing is slowing him down. He comes from a motocross background. He comes from a very much an alpha male attack, attack, attack. Um, but when it comes to the bottom of thousand, especially when you're running solo, it's all about you. You're racing yourself. You're racing the, the, the watch. You're, 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 
you're trying to just keep, keep the ball, keep the ball moving forward. And so for Jeff, the biggest thing is making sure that he's prepared, like being more emotional, just calm before the start, that the mic is ready to go. We, we were fortunate we didn't have any failures this year. We had a couple of mechanical things, but the, the mic was solid. And just get him in the right frame of mind to relax and ride. What bike are you using? Well, he, he, this year he used uh, a Honda CRF450X. So it's got an electric start. He has the, the wiring set up with, with the light. Then you have a, a more powerful steer because Bob is on his ring wires that they get a brighter light. So you can go bigger on lights, but you get, you get so big. And also the light, the weight becomes a factor. So Bob's eyes have been very good at making a small compact unit that shoots a lot of light, but also is not too heavy for the rider because then it takes the balance of the bike away. What, uh, so you were talking earlier about, uh, you know, the night, is there, can they use night vision or anything like that for the races? Is that, man? They can, they can use night vision, they can use higher lights. Some guys have been talking about wanting to do that. But you can imagine spectators all of a sudden, they don't, they hear, they think they, they hear something, and you're going to kill a spectator and you're on the roads and stuff like that. So, so no, nobody's using, I have used thermal when I was racing for Jam. Cool. Um, they, they did have a thermal light, which was kind of cool when we got, we got way behind. We had some mechanical difficulties, and I actually clicked it on one because I wanted to see, because all I could see was right in front of me with the dust. But when we did that, I could see the temperature where the, where the tracks from the car in front of me. But I just stayed on those tracks because they were warm. And then I saw the, the motor blowing out a Volkswagen, and I chased it down, ran into it, and got past him, and then chased the next guy. Yeah, I mean, the technology's there. I might as well put it to use, you know, just for the safety of everybody involved with the racer, I mean, why not? Yeah, for, for, the, for the drivers, yes, but the biggest problem is, is the lights and everybody let the spectators know to get out of the way. Yeah, I understand that. Ernesto, you've been quiet, buddy. I have, well, I'm with the, uh, with the cool guys talk. So, so you, you took part in the last race. Uh, Ricky said that you were uh, running support, mechanical support and whatnot. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, well, mechanics has been around for a long time, and we, uh, we're very embedded with the, the military, especially on the special operations side. And, but ultimately, we are still a small brand, and uh, when I get involved, this this, this I'm like a person on earth that hasn't heard of multi-cam. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, well, that's what we're hoping for, anyway. Yeah. Um, like I said, it's a really good job. Um, I think. Uh, you know, when we take on a project here, especially on, on the multi-cam side, it's it's kind of all in. And, you know, so I got with uh, Jeff and Ricky at the beginning of it and planned the budget. And then it's like we started planning, okay, so we're going to make his riding gear. We're going to decorate his helmet. We're going to decorate the bike, you know, wrap it in the multi-cam and just get everything situated on that end. And then it was... I got to say, it's not the colors I was, I was expecting for multi-cam. That was a, a big topic of conversation in the first, uh, the, for the 2014 race, uh, especially after talking to Ricky um, with his expertise and experience down there. Is the great thing about multicam is that it blends in, uh, but in, in regards to a race, that's not the good thing because uh, it needs to be seen. We can only get it as tactics. It's tactical. So what's tactical for the race? Tactical for the race is you want to be seen. You know, a lot of people think tactical is covert, hidden, but tactical is just whatever best suits you for whatever operation you're getting ready to do. You know, whether it's hiking or fishing or uh, a race. Right. You know, for, for us, it was a, it was a 
as an opportunity to get our, our pattern out there in a different way. We, we like thinking about marketing opportunities differently, and obviously if it's involved with veterans uh, such, such as Jeff, uh, we, we're all over it, and uh, it was just an opportunity to get our pattern out there, and so we went with our Alpine pattern, which is our solo camo, because it would, one, be visible, and keep him... Uh, mm-hmm. And you did an orange color with it as well. Yeah, we, we know that the, uh, the orange is a good color and it's striking and we can, it's a good identifier. So, yeah. uh, you guys use the, um, the reflector orange, so like if lights hit it, it reflects the thickness in the night. Did you do yeah. that? No, but uh, I think that the last Baja and uh, even this one, we almost had a month or a month and a half to still something together. <laughs> yeah, so we, we scrambled, but uh, yeah. I'll jot that down for, for this year. Yeah, man. Um, anything out there, out there, you know, like Baja Piss or Reflector yeah. <laughs> Arts that you want to use, take it and run with it, man. Got it. Okay, just a plug for, for Ernesto. He's been down there pre running with us for the last two years, and, you know, he just does an exceptional job. And the whole multi cam cry team, I mean, they, you know, they send guys down there, they get the film crew, and they're just there working all the time. And, you know, it's just, I just feel so fortunate to you know, have these guys behind me. Anyway, I just want to tell them thank you, and you know, I'm very grateful for that. Right on. And what I was getting at with the camo is I like it. <laughs> I wouldn't try to knock you on the camo, dude. I, I, I like it. I'm, I'm glad it's... I like that you guys got out of your, you know, your comfort level with that. Well, we had, you know, obviously created multi-cam way back when with the idea that we wanted one camo to work for, you know, a soldier in a multitude of environments uh, without him having to change gear from... Especially as special operations guys who could be in the, in the jungle one day in the desert the next. So we stuck with that for a long time. But we had guys in the mirrors, especially in majors that we were close with, that were asking for a more area specific camel pattern. So uh, it made sense for us uh, a couple years ago to come out with the other patterns, uh, you know, Aaron, which is a more desert one, um, Tropic, which is your jungle, Alpine, which is your snow, and then we have a, a law enforcement themed camel called Multi Cam Black. So that was the idea. I like the multicam black. So like, when, when you guys came out with that, it was just like, man, that is badass. I love that. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we're pretty proud of it. And, um, we're happy with the, the traction that the, uh, the new patterns have, uh, have, have made so far. It's yeah. been very good. Now, you, you guys uh, offer those in, uh, you know what the hydrographics are? Bips. I certainly do. Yeah. No, we've... Uh, We've been uh, selling our hydrographic film to TWN, um, and uh, when the new patterns came on board, we there was certainly a category of ours after fabric that we concentrated on. So we've got uh, multi-cam black, uh, alpine, and uh, tropic ready to go in here and behind me. So i got to show you this, and I know this isn't a multi-cam, but <laughs> I did my, uh, my Mossberg 500 in uh, giraffe. <laughs> Safari on set, you know, I'm hunting giraffe. 
just to, to add on to going down there and helping uh, uh, Jeff and Yeah, I wanted to get your experience on that. You know, that's that's got to be a whole other aspect of the race that people don't normally hear about. It is, and I've loved to read all kinds of racing as, as a kid from Formula One, MotoGP, the Supercross. Uh, I mean, I grew up with posters of Ricky Elman and all. When I got involved in this whole thing, I, you know, at the beginning of it, I thought, okay, well, I need to plan this out and just make it happen. So they have their gear and everything, and they're ready to go. But then it turned into, oh, you're going down there. This is for guy. I'm like, let's do it. I know. But I remember vividly the night before the race, um, all kind of meeting up, and, and Ricky's telling me to kind of have a little last team meeting and <laughs> going through all the plans for, for the next day. The last thing that Ricky said was he turned to myself and two of the guys that were other drivers and said, guys, everybody will agree that the, the, the racers have the sacred job and that you guys have the more dangerous job. So be careful. You didn't want to hear that, did you? <laughs> so, just, I was like, all right, cool. I'll, I'll do that. But, you know, it's, it's a really crazy uh, experience. Um, just in a nutshell, just kind of, it's probably you can't. Put it in a nutshell, but what, what was your duty? What was your job? Obviously, the, the first one was, was driving one of the vehicles and uh, staying with, with the whole crew uh, that we had going. There was three. Uh, well, the first first year it was four trucks, and this past year it was three. You know, I was doing everything from helping out with uh, pre running for the race, the four days that we were doing that. And um, then during the race, it was just you know, staying up with everybody and trying to be at the uh, right checkpoints at the right time to be ready for getting the bike uh, service, getting new parts on it, getting water, food, whatever it needed, um, helping get it gear on and off. And plus, we had new videographers that we hired that uh, everybody's filming everything. Yeah, so the guys from Fox Hunt Productions just do amazing work. Um, they, uh, you know, I just had to also make sure that they were there to film it and document the whole thing because obviously this is a marketing thing for us, but you know, more importantly, this is a really cool story. It's a great story. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're obviously very fond of, of Jeff, and we want to support his um, racing efforts, and uh, we're fascinated by the story and to see Watch It Live is just amazing. And hopefully, that the video that we did recently um, captures that. And I think it does. It that was a great video. Yeah, thanks. So very well done. I'm sure that, that Jeff, you're wearing uh, uh, one of the GoPros. You got GoPros all decked out everywhere. Yeah, they had GoPros on the front fender, on the helmet, you know, on my chest. Um, yeah, they had a big full crop um, you know, UAV wheel flying and chasing, turned some of it. Um, yeah, yeah, like you said, that video was really, really well done. I was very proud of that. Proud to be here. Those guys did a great job. So the guy asking me, is it like an astronaut suit? If when you got to go, you just get in the suit. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, that was an issue this year. You know, you start with it, you know, it was a piss too. Comes out your leg, you cut a hole, and it comes out by your boot. And at some point, it got pinched off and basically blew off through the race. So, oh, dang. Uh, so I was just, you know, improvising and causing lots of pain and agony as the night wore on. Um, was that? So, you know, I think a learning point is over a 25 and a half hour long race, just take the 20 seconds to stop, and if you gotta go that bad, then it's miserable, you know, like I've done. Was this the race where you had, uh, you had a breakdown, and it, was it like six hours it took for you to, or is it the race before? 
lifestyle right now, and that's a lot go a lot faster than they do in America, and, and they're all over the road. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. But uh, to me, if I had a choice, I'd much rather be, you know, the guy, the guy getting the physical crappy out and not on the track. Just <laughs> his dad, just a little bit. Dad, my dad helped Chase with my nephew, and you know, one of his buddies in the set. One point, he closed his eyes, and he's just like, you know what? This is crazy. There's, you know, one foot drop offs on the sides of the road. You know, I mean, it's just really sketchy. Third world country, yeah. Yeah, you talked about it a lot. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're. It's it's a it's a it's a definite roller coaster, and it, it mirrors the terrain of the of the highway. You're going through these crazy mountain passes and plateaus, and then these open valleys in the desert. But you've got you know the roads are narrow. It's a two lane road. You've got semis coming at you at 90 miles an hour, and you're doing 90 miles an hour. You're trying to pass a, a Toyota Tercel from 1982 going 20 miles an hour, and uh, you're not supposed to speed, but you have to speed. And uh, you've got Big chase trucks from the for the for the trophy trucks, you know, cruising past with all their guys. It, it's uh, it's yeah. Then the team members get penalized for speeding as well, or is it just the racers that get penalized for speeding? The, the racing body is not watching what the uh, okay, the okay, yeah. they've cruised are doing, but you gotta worry about the police. Well, yeah, Oiga, señor, we are federales, you know. The mountain police. If you're the police, where are your badges? Badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. Just kind of hanging out and then some uh, bike prep. Um, you know, the day before the race. 
race, you get on the race bike, and they open up the start, so you can run, you know, 20, 25 miles of the start and kind of check that out. They're out on the race bike. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, they're for a week or so. Tactical Walls is a family-owned and operated business based in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Our products are proudly manufactured in the United States. Every product is handcrafted using mostly U.S. source materials whenever possible. We make products that are simple to install, are easy to use, and offer discrete storage solutions for every room. Our in-wall concealment covers are a two-part concealment solution. The insert sits recessed in your wall space, flush with your drywall between 16 on-center studs. The cover mounts around the insert to conceal your new storage space, and it's all protected with a seamless magnetic locking system. You can purchase covers and inserts separately for your own needs, or save when you buy a bundle. Tactical wall concealment shelves are designed to mount on your wall for an easily accessible concealed storage option that doesn't require you to cut a hole in your wall. The bottom of the shelf hinges down to allow you access to your stored items with ease. Accessories like LED lighting and extra foam pads allow you to truly customize your shelf to your needs. Tactical Wall's line of concealment furniture offers you a useful piece of furniture for your room, plus the added bonus of built-in concealment storage. If putting something on the wall isn't for you, try out a solid-built piece of our furniture. New to the Tactical Wall's family of concealment solutions, concealment home decor, such as concealment wall clocks, concealment lamps, and even concealment tissue boxes, with more products on the way. So make sure you visit us at tacticalwalls.com and check out all our home concealment solutions. Tactical Walls, the leading innovator in home firearms concealment. Alright guys, so now it's time for our Jack Wagon of the Week. Hoorah, Semper do or die, hold them high at 8th and I. It is time for the Talking Lead Jack Wagon of the Week, so brace yourself, baby. to get her all starter and um, hopefully he'll get to keep his job. So 
about you guys? You got any jack wagons you want to throw in on the jack wagon train other than the Federales? Be ready to attack Rock Ridge at noon tomorrow. Here's your badge. Sergeant, we don't need no stinking badge. <laughs> <laughs> SBI is proud to present the Talking Lead Facts of the Fight of the Mythos.
the fact is that the bottom of Bowser is not always 1,000 miles. Sometimes it's closer to 1,000 kilometers. Um, and same thing with the Bob 500. It initially started out as the, the bottom of Bowser, and then that was because it was 1,000 miles, but that was highway mm-hmm. from, from, from Chip, not quite Chip to Chip, but down to Mont Paz. When they, when they initially did it, they sent a telegraph from San Diego, and when they got to La Paz, they sent another telegraph to let everybody know that they were there. There was no routes. Because some of the roads were, most of the roads were dirt, and how it went zigzag back and forth side to side for smoothness for, for cars, that's where the guys could go off road and, and, uh, and make it a little bit shorter and a little bit faster. So that's how the, the race originated. And a couple of guys for Honda, for a Honda Scrambler, jumped on them, took off, and then rode down to the tip. So they, they were doing like a bird's eye thing for the, as the crow flies measured it instead of actual what it was. Exactly. That's a great fact of like the Good job, Ricky. Anybody else want to have one? You got any kind of camo miss or? I've been trying to think about actually. I should. Do you have anything subliminal hid inside your camo? Other people can look and maybe find it. Because I heard that if you look close enough, you can find a penis somewhere. Is that true? <laughs> I can either confirm or not. I can't confirm that there is no penis in However, there is a symbol hidden in the bed. That's all I can say. Okay. That's awesome. I didn't know that. Is it like one of those those things that you stare at for for so long and then all of a sudden it turns into like a boat with pirates it's on it? It's a, it's a schooner. It's a schooner. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking about though? You know, like in the Sunday fish that happened in the Sunday paper and they, it's like a bunch of different colored pixels and if you stare at it long enough it'll turn into some kind of actual picture. I'm sure this I'm sure there's there's enough uh, multi cam panels on it at some point. Just try to stereotype for a long time and see what uh, what's. Uh, but what that's for real, though. There's actually something hidden in the. Yeah, yeah. there is. Okay. It's not a scooter, though. Is it? It's not a scooter. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but is that like is that a known thing, or is it just is that like no, inside company? It's known by a handful, but there is something in there. Awesome. There you go, leadheads. Don't keep it super super secret. You don't get yeah, the penis yeah. stuff out, you don't get the penis stuff in there. SDI's 32 semester credit hour certificate program in gunsmithing and 60 credit hour associate of science and firearms technology degree program can work hand in hand and are the most complete training programs of their kind. SDI strives to give you the best quantity and quality of professional gunsmithing information and tools. These programs are perfect for students interested in careers in the firearms industry or for those who are interested in owning their own gunsmithing business. Our programs are delivered by distance learning, which allows our students to maintain full-time jobs, families, military service, and more while working towards their degree or certificate. The Sonoran Desert Institute mission is adding value to our students' lives by providing innovative, relevant, and applicable workplace-driven education through distance-delivered instructions. Visit them at sdi.edu. So that, that was our fact to fight the miss. Great, uh, great miss there and facts there, guys. That was awesome. I don't think we've had that kind of one in a while. But very cool. So now 
issue with uh, fuel. So in September, I paid for my Baja Pits fuel service. Um, so I didn't get a sticker. About halfway through the race, one of the, one of the guys in the middle of nowhere says, hey, I'm not giving you fuel. You got a sticker. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I paid in September the American Express. You know, and I'm having this discussion with this guy, and he's, he's refusing. It's like, there's not enough fuel for the other dogs. You're not enough minutes. I'm like, bro, you got 80 guys that aren't going to even come, come this far, you know? Right. Plenty of fuel. And it really, it got to one point where I'm like, look, I'm going to get off the bike. I'm going to punch you in the face. I'm going to take my fuel. Take your fuel. And that's the end of it. And so he gave me fuel, and I left. Um, well, let's back up to the jack wagon train. That guy's on the jack wagon train, too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank God. So then on the way home, so I drove my truck from California back to North Carolina. I called the owner of Baja Pits and he says, yeah, absolutely. We don't do that. We don't not give anybody fuel. We don't deny fuel to anybody. It's just a safety issue. He goes, the guy got chewed out and subsequently fired. So I was like, okay, good. We're straight going to meet you here next year. Navigation. So just, you know, and all the wind taken, and RJ's told me this before, and just, just having a piece of tape on your tank, with mile markers, like mile 151 is the start of the speed zone. That would have saved me, you know, a lot of, a lot of time and effort, and I would have, you know, easily won the, won the uh, internet class. So, you know, it, it's a learning process every year. Get a little better, learn a little more. Um, and this will be your fourth one, right? Yeah, this will be the fourth time this year. Um, yeah. And Ricky, have you, have you coached him all four years? Yeah. Well, I first met him. When he, he grew up racing motocross and was still racing motocross and he still does. Um, but every time I meet somebody, especially guys in the, from the sophomore league, they always want to talk about the Bob 1000 because it is that gut check. It is that race where you see the movies Dust of Glory or on any Sunday. So you see these guys out there, you know, racing all night long. And it's, it's the Spartan challenge on, on motorsports. And so from there, he's like, I think I want to try that. So we live in California and living in North Carolina. We were able to put it together on the first year with him and the Navy uh, guy. And then, as I said, last year was supposed to be the three of them, but the Navy guy got hurt. And so it's just down to two of them. And then he said, I think I want to try solo. Um, now he gets his partners. Partners were great. They did an awesome job with both of them. Um, obviously, you know, great patriots and they awesome writers and stuff. But Jeff just wanted to challenge it to him by himself. And so this year, you can tell somebody a thousand times. But once they do it, you know, he came back with all these things to take a little time in the pit, you know, just all of the, all of the things that were going over and over in his head. And I'll be honest with you, I was the same way the first time I got to Mexico for racing motocross and the short course. I had more flaccid crashes and stuff than, than anybody. But I was fortunate enough to live through it and tell, and to tell the story. This so each year, he's lived it and he's had to sacrifice. One pissing in his pants, his whole crotch is on fire, and, you know, rash and everything like that. And his hands came apart, um, and the tire came apart, all these little things. And so, so you get better each time you go. So I think he, he obviously showed that he has this, definitely has a speed because he killed everybody on speed, especially on the asphalt. Um, <laughs> the new record on the asphalt. Uh, two miles over. One or two my ass. <laughs> I think he passed six guys or something. But anyhow, you live and learn because the year before they didn't, they didn't handle it one penalty. And he knew that he was speeding a lot of areas and stuff like that. So, definitely, I'm going to be his coach as long as he wants to keep doing it. 
And so the, the little things we're going to clean it up. And the biggest thing I think that we're going to make better for this year is the preparation. Because um, if you're going down there and finishing the bike the day before the race, and you can't do that. The bike has to be completely finished, has to be shaken down, tested, uh, put 100 miles on it, you know, set the rings really hard, and really run it so it don't, you know what you got, and then really stick to your game plan. And that's what, that's what you know, they basically you want to be militant about doing stuff. You want to have do things in, in a very um, strategic fashion when you're down there. You follow your plan, and if you might straight a little bit right or a little bit left, but you know I'm changing the tire here. I'm changing the tire there. And then once you get to the last 100 miles, if you have to blow everything off to go for the win and, and, and go for broke, that's when that's when you exhaust yourself. But you don't do that halfway and um, or a quarter of the way or two thirds of the way. You have to make sure that you save that that burst of stupidity for the end. <laughs> Very well said. Are there races between now and the Baja that you that you do to prepare yourself to get ready? Um, well, you know, they have squirrels multiple races in the Baja 500, you know, say Felipe 250. Um, but I don't do those, and, and mainly it's a time constraint. Um, you know, RJ and I have a company called America Off-Road. We're pretty busy um, on the West and East Coast, uh, you know, giving drivers training um, to one of our military special ops guys. Yeah, that's something I wanted you to talk about also. I'm sorry I forgot about that. I meant to ask you about that earlier. Can you talk about the American Off-Road? Yeah, there's, sure. There's some cool... Um, Cool company that you guys started. Yeah, a couple of years ago, um, you know, I, I retired. I initially I bought a motocross tractor in North Carolina and ran that for for a while. And you know, there's it's a miserable deal. There's no money in it. <laughs> it's just a farmer rancher. Um, you know, losing all kinds of weight. Anyway, uh, RJ approached me and said, "Hey, man, let's uh, you know, are you interested in you know starting this uh, this deal?" And RJ came up with the name Rogo and American Off Road and I guess this is our second full year running, and yeah, we've got a nice contract with, uh, with General Dynamics teaching uh, one of those so-called vehicles out, out west. Then we do a lot of special forces and special ops guys, either on you know all the way from motorcycles all the way down to the bigger vehicles. We do a lot of high-speed asphalt car control stuff. Yeah, and it's just it's, it's so the, the basis of the company is you're teaching strategic defense, not defense, but uh, strategic driving methods. I wouldn't necessarily even call it strategic. I mean, we're teaching guys how to drive from motorcycles to cars. I mean, you know, lots of people have a Harley. They get around town on it, but do they know how to ride a motorcycle? No. Same thing with a car. Very well can drive it from here to the grocery store, but, you know, we show them how to get the most out of their vehicle, you know, and the, and the techniques. And but you're training special forces guys, military guys, yeah. I mean, law enforcement guys. Yeah. Red letter agency guys. Right. So it's a, it's it's not just driving school, right? it's it's a highly specialized kind of driving that, that you guys are teaching, right? Yeah. Well, you know, when we take these guys, obviously you got a bunch of alpha males want to get in the car, want to haul ass and break stuff, and what are they learning? And we then Rob Latham um, is the guy that brought me in to for brand work with these guys originally, and, and I watched how methodical Rob is in his teaching, drawing and gun. From those follow watch and spend hours just pulling the gun from the holster to, you know, and pointing it. And so, with that, you're creating muscle memory. So, in cars and trucks and bikes and different things, you need to have a certain skill set of muscle memory. So, when it goes bad, you're able to correct. And so, in order to teach these guys how to react if they're being chased, 
how to react when they're chasing somebody and they get off track and they get in the dirt and they're racing with their driving off road in sand. Uh, we're working with Jay Tisler from the uh, for recovery. So we do a lot of different stuff, everything from rock crawling, high speed across the desert, motorcycles, side by sides, um, you know, and uh, also the flyer the GD flyer and stuff like that. So it's a full spectrum. And so what I'm doing is I'm taking my experience racing trucks, some NASCAR stuff, motorcycle racing, jet racing, he drinks Baja, but he also ran a mobility shop at, at one of his last jobs. So he's more familiar on what the operator needs. And so that's one of my skills to make to make it a little bit better for them and not just, oh, this is a, I need you to be a motorcycle racer because they don't need to be that. They need to be, as, as Jeff said, they need to be a driver or a rider. It doesn't matter what they get on or what they're riding on or what they're driving or where they're driving. They need to be able to get at it and take it to, to 90% now. Very cool. And the name of that company again? American Off-Road. American Off-Road. And uh, people want to get in touch with you, maybe get their uh, their guys over and get some training. How do they get in touch with you? Yeah, we have a website, AmericanOffRoad.com. Um, Facebook, too. Facebook? Yeah, Facebook. Um, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I think our authority is my phone number's on there. Cool. All right, guys, check the American Off-Road out as well. Give everybody their contact info now. They can follow you guys on your racing. Nice.